Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Planets, stars, distant galaxies, nebula, meteors, comets, and everything in between. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the cosmos and the glory of God, with Wayne and Dan. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his groundbreaking work, Origin of the Species, in which he attempts to give an account for how the diversity of life arose completely naturally, without a creator. Darwin's work, however, does not address the origin of life, and to the present day, there is no current scientific or empirical evidence for how life began, though many theories have been postulated. The assumption of big science that life began and later developed naturally here on Earth has led many to speculate that given there likely exists an uncountable plethora of planets which populate our universe, then it seems reasonable, even inevitable, that life serendipitously began on some of these other planets as well. And if you've been following the news lately, you have probably heard that the new James Webb Space Telescope has detected signatures of water vapor in the atmosphere of a distant planet. This discovery immediately caused NASA scientists to speak publicly about Earth-like planets once again. But we here at Good Heavens believe Earth-like is a misnomer at best and a contradiction at worst. First, scientists of the heavens have been telling us for decades that Earth is nothing special, just a hunk of rock and metal located in no particularly special place in the universe, just a mote of dust with some thin bacterial film crawling upon its surface. If that is the case, why then are scientists getting excited about a planet with water vapor on it? If our life on Earth is just an accidental amalgam of cosmic detritus, who should care about water vapor or what any other life form in the cosmos might be like? It follows that if our planet and life upon it are humdrum, so too would be any other biologically habitable planet. Second, scientists should just stop using the term Earth-like planet until they actually find another world with something like blue whales and elephants milling about on it. Consider, for example, what two physicists imagine in a 2017 book about planets outside our solar system. Quote, On Earth, the advent of what we would call complex, intelligent life took place after oxygen accumulated in the atmosphere 
and became available as a source for metabolic energy. Oxygen, in turn, was a byproduct of photosynthesis, a surface effect. Whether such a high-grade energy source could appear in a subsurface ocean is not known. It could be that only the largest of existing ice planets can have sufficient energy to support complex life. If they can do so, however, then we can imagine a complex technological society developing in such an ocean of liquid water, just as our own developed in an ocean of gases." End quote. Imagining is about all that will be done regarding such scenarios. Assume what the origin of life entailed here on Earth, then extend that hypothesis to worlds far beyond our purview and ability to test, and then stamp it with the approval of big science. This is how the idea of a subaquatic complex technological society on a large ice planet is presented. But this is no longer science, but science fiction. Never mind Plato, this is Pluto's Atlantis. If life is going to develop elsewhere in the universe to the extent imagined by the physicists, there are more than just a few things that need to be in place. Before we can even begin to talk about a single cell, there must be an enormous amount of factors in place to sustain complex carbon-based life such as we know it here on Earth. You would need a stable star, for example, like our sun, emitting just the right amount of light and heat without too many flares or eruptions, a star that doesn't spin too fast or too slow. Then you need a planet at just the right distance from such a sun, with just the right mass, with a magnetic field to protect life from the host star. And this planet also must have an atmosphere with just the right amount of elements and pressure, so as not to crush or suffocate any potentially nascent life. Let us assume for the moment you have all of those necessary factors. What then would you need in order to produce a cell containing deoxyribose nucleic acid, or DNA? Simply put, you need information. This is precisely what DNA is, cellular information that dictates what a cell becomes. Synthetic organic chemist Dr. James Tour notes that, quote, any account of the origin of the first life must include a mechanism for the generation of the chemicals needed for life, and then for how life arose from those pre-existing non-living chemicals. Abiogenesis proposals, the study of the origin of life, attempt to explain how chemical processes transformed pre-existing non-living chemicals into more complex information-bearing molecules such as DNA, RNA, and proteins. For an account of their origin to be realistic, there must be chemical processes that can successfully arrange simple organic compounds into complex biologically relevant macromolecules and living cells. Life requires carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. But what is the chemistry behind their origin? What is the origin of metabolism or of the information storage and processing systems that depend on these complex biochemical compounds?" End quote. From his extensive experience and research in the fields of synthetic organic chemistry, and despite the numerous theoretical naturalistic scenarios proposed for the origin of life, Dr. Tour concludes, quote, nobody understands how this happened, end quote. Thank you.
And if the biological sciences have no solid understanding about how life arose here on terra firma, it is highly unlikely that any potential theory for life developing elsewhere in the universe, especially of the technologically advanced kind, is likely to remain in the realm of science fiction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and life upon it. He formed the earth to be inhabited and did not create it as a waste place. This is part one of our discussion about how naturalistic theories about the origin and development of life inevitably lead people to speculate about life on other planets. On part one, Wayne and I discuss the particulars about what sort of planet could host life. And on part two, we'll get into the search for aliens and discuss alien abduction phenomena. Well, good heavens, Wayne. It is another good heavens. And uh, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, Dan. Uh, another another uh, episode of Good Heavens. Another episode of Good Heavens that was uh, almost curtailed by an alien invasion. Of, uh, <laughs> or or, or uh, imperfect technology, one of the two. Yes, uh, or aliens were messing with our technology, right? Um, <laughs> what I call our tethered deviceness we are so our tethered deviceness that's a great one yeah we are so tethered to our devices that we uh we tend to have a a personality disorder uh short-term personality disorder <laughs> when when technology <laughs> doesn't work um you know you know Wayne. if there was ever ev- any evidence for for aliens i think it would be uh computer technology right uh it is designed to frustrate <laughs> <laughs> and maybe with all these viruses and everything that, uh, you know, who knows. But uh, uh, the reason I keep bringing up these alien analogies and, and kind of these really bad dad jokes is uh, because we're going to be talking about aliens again. And uh, Wayne, did you ever think that five years ago when we started Good Heavens that our most popular episodes would be on aliens? Well, I didn't expect that. And um it's uh it was very slowly uh it was very slow and rising to the top like it did yeah some some episodes take off real quickly and other episodes they kind of have a long period of growth yeah yeah they kind of uh ferment and grow and and uh yeah some of our our most widely downloaded or listened to episodes are about aliens so we thought well what else can we do about aliens and uh, we came up with this idea that we were going to talk about how the concept or theory of natural selection and evolution um, lead to uh, this idea of alien life. And um, so we we thought we'd address that because there are uh, some direct connections between um, natural selection and the way in which we view how life um, arose. Now, of course, natural selection doesn't deal with origins of life, right? Um, that's a abiogenesis. And, um, but Darwin's theory and, and evolution today talks about once life gets started, 
then evolution takes over. But the assumption in evolution and natural selection is a long, slow, gradual process um, from which all the variety of biological life on the earth came about through unguided, natural, unintended processes of, um, of development of trial and error over 4.5 billion years. That's generally the, uh, the consensus of, uh, of how it works. So we will be kind of talking about two different topics that I want to make sure that we get right because I know some of our listeners will say, hey, that's abiogenesis, not evolution. Um, but uh, we will be kind of talking about both of those, and I'll hopefully be clear when I'm saying one or the other. But um, Well, uh, yeah, so there's um, – it's often assumed that evolution is uh, – you know, people call it a proven fact, but it's not, and it was never – proven it was uh you know any anything about origins is something that science has inherent limitations because we can't do experiments in the past but so if you but if you accept evolution i don't but if you accept evolution then uh knowing what we know about planets around other stars then people very quickly connected the dots between evolution and exoplanets, uh, Dan. And so there's a lot of assumptions made about um, it's the, the line of thinking that says if if life evolved here on Earth, it could evolve in many other places. But um, that's not certain. We don't know that. And uh, there's a lot of obstacles to that actually yeah exactly the concept is um and it's just been in the last what 10 20 years uh, that we've been uh, diligently looking for planets in uh, the universe and well the first yes the first exoplanet was found in 1995 i believe it was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh now um, there's over five thousand that are they would say are confirmed mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. know of. Now almost all of those are in our own galaxy because there's 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 only one way of detecting them outside the galaxy, and it's not something that can be used often. But um, so there are exoplanets around other stars of various kinds. Uh, most of them we know of are gaseous planets, kind of similar to Jupiter. Right. But there are some that are rocky planets. And uh, they, scientists talk about the habitable zone. Uh, there was a website I found called hzgallery.org that uh, says they had uh, 149 uh, exoplanets known that are in the habitable zone. Mm, now, the habitable zone, and I'm probably going to say habitable at some point in this broadcast because that's just a word that I say. It doesn't mean anything, but uh, forgive me ahead of time, <laughs> friends, if I say habitable. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's a word that means making something into a habit. It's habitable. I don't know. But uh, we are talking about a certain range. Sometimes it's called the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Where. You have to have a host star like our sun 
uh, something like our sun. It doesn't. They're saying that it doesn't have to be our sun, but if we have a star, say something like our sun, then a planet that could harbor carbon-based life of any kind, bacteria to plants to, to monkeys, uh, that planet would have to have a certain mass, a certain um, amount of water, a certain, but it would have to be a certain distance from its host star in order to even begin to qualify as a life-hosting planet. Um, and that's what the habitable zone is, the Goldilocks zone. Too hot, too cold, but just right. Yeah, that's a concept. Um, so what they want to see is that the planet would have the, the kind of temperature range that could allow for liquid water at least some of the time, and that they really want, wanted to have an atmosphere that's appropriate. Usually they, they look for evidence of a carbon dioxide atmosphere. Um, and that's because of their assumptions about what they believe on how life originated on Earth. No, they're, they're making a lot of assumptions in this. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually two different ways of defining the habitable zone, Dan. Uh, there's what's called the optimistic habitable zone. And another approach is called the conservative habitable zone. <laughs> I wonder so, what those mean. <laughs> so uh, optimistic is based on looking at what happens in our solar system and the, with the conditions from Venus to Mars. So Venus is just too hot no matter how you look at it. It's just outside what's considered the habitable zone. I mean, it's too close to the to the sun for that. And Mars, they kind of see it as kind of on the outer edge of the habitable zone. Mm, okay. And it's this is based on mainly the distance from the star and how much uh, light and energy comes from the star. And so this combination of how how much energy does the star give you and uh, what's the distance uh, that determines this optimistic habitable zone. The optimistic is means that it's looking at the best case possible based on the distance from the star, and, and it's also based on the star. Gotcha. gotcha. So optimistic is going to give you a bigger habitable zone gotcha. uh, than the conservative habitable zone. <laughs> So I don't like the optimistic habitable zone. I think it's unrealistic, really. Okay. And how big it is. But conservative habitable zone considers not only the distance from the star and what the star is like, but it also considers uh, the greenhouse effect. Gotcha. Now, to figure out the conservative habitable zone, you have to know something about the planet. You've got to know that it has an atmosphere. Um but we don't know that for some of these planets, okay? So if you like, if you imagine taking Mercury and putting Mercury close to where Earth is, it wouldn't make Mercury any more habitable. It's still a rock. Mm. You know, it's just a big rock. Right, right. So we need to know something about these planets before we can be sure if, you know, if life could live there. And we don't know very much. For most of them. There are some of them, if we could do a transit measurement, you know, transit is where if you're looking at a star and our line of sight and the planet passes in front of our line of sight, 
So it kind of interrupts the light of the star, and you get a dip on the light of the star. That's mm-hmm. a transit measurement like the Kepler Space Telescope did. And if you can do that, you can tell if a planet is uh, a rocky planet because you can figure out the size of the planet approximately. Yeah. And you can figure out if it has an atmosphere. Now, what's interesting, too, is that in the popular literature that you survey, you might hear it in the news or on your news feeds or on the websites or whatever that um, astronomers have found Earth-like planets. But um, that's kind of clickbait in a sense because to me and to many others, we talked to Guillermo Gonzalez a few years ago. You know, his idea, he wrote in our book, his idea of an Earth-like planet is something of a planet that can host bunny rabbits and tomatoes, right? That uh, That's Earth-like. <laughs> yes. So when you're using Earth-like, you're leaving out a few things. That's like saying a, uh, a treehouse is mansion-like. I mean, okay, there's a little bit of a similar structure there, maybe not the best analogy, but the Earth-like thing is kind of deceptive. It usually generally means a planet that is something the size of Earth, a star kind of like ours. When the scientists use the term Earth-like, they really just mean it's about the size of Earth or maybe up to a couple, uh, maybe up to about twice the diameter of Earth or something. Yeah, yeah. It's not too much bigger, and it's got to be rocky. Okay. Right, right. And that's another thing. We can't actually determine if some of these planets are rocky planets. Or uh, thick uh, super Jupiters. If you, yeah, if you can't do a transit, and there's a lot of them we can't do transits for, and then you don't know if right. if, it, if it's a rocky planet even. Hey, Wayne, I was at the uh, gym the other day, and they had a song on. You may have known this song. It's an old, it was really popular back in the, I think maybe the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. It was a rock band from Sweden. I think they're in northern Europe somewhere called Europe. And they had this song called The Final Countdown. It's a popular song. I'm not going oh, to yeah. sing it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everybody, for my singing. But uh, I was listening. And I was like, you know, I used to listen to that song. And I, the, the, the absolute most silliest lyrics I, it just hit me because I've <laughs> I've heard this song. I was just listening because we were doing we were thinking of this podcast. Um, the the song is you know we're leaving Earth. Maybe we'll come back. Um, and uh, the singer says we're headed to Venus. Maybe they've seen us, <laughs> and will welcome us all. And even though there we have light years to go, so it was just like. <laughs> <laughs> we're headed to Venus. Did anybody do their science? <laughs> uh, yeah, this doesn't and, really work. No, and maybe they'll see us like like there's people living there. Like no, because the atmosphere would the atmosphere of Venus crushed a Russian satellite decades ago. It landed, took a few pictures, and then it was crushed like a soda can. And then yeah, the, and it's hot enough to melt lead. On the hot surface. enough to melt lead. It's poisonous atmosphere. It is the size of Earth, but there's there's nobody there that's going to welcome earth people and then the whole idea of it being light years away (laughs) venus is only well it depends on our orbits but venus could be anywhere from 100 or so million miles away to uh, 24 million miles at its closest but uh, anyway just a silly aside that like the most unscientific (laughs) non-astronomical bad facts that i've ever heard in in lyrics that uh, that venus supports life (laughs) yeah this is just an example of a problem we have in our society i think dan is that we, you know, we enjoy science fiction, 
Okay, and I enjoy science fiction too. But yeah, we we should not get mixed up between science fiction and science fact. That's correct. And we we really do this. Uh, we there's do. A, there's a lot of kind of bl- blending or bleeding of the the fictional ideas into the factual ideas of people. Absolutely. So, that, so people have a lot of misconceptions. Right, right. I, as I was doing a little back, background reading about this, going through some of my notes, um, some of the ideas and the concepts that we'll touch on briefly tonight uh, were seem like mind-bending science fiction. But I think the thing is, because a scientist says it, gives it credence, um, and, and it sneaks in the fiction part under the guise of, no, this is real science, the math tells us that this is possible and some people go so far as to say well the math isn't just saying it's possible the math is saying it must be this way um but to 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 launch if you will to use the analogy here to launch about what we're talking about i have a quote from uh, richard dawkins's 2006 book uh the best-selling book the god delusion and he has this little quote that i that that i think explains kind of where our our talk is going tonight. Um, Dawkins says this, quote, we really need Darwin, Charles Darwin's powerful crane to account for the diversity of life on earth. Basically, we need natural selection to to account for the diversity of life on earth, he says, that uh, all of life came from Darwin's uh, concept of natural selection. And he says, especially persuasive is the illusion of design. And then he says, the origin of life, by contrast, what scientists call abiogenesis, lies outside of the reach of that crane. In other words, Darwin's uh, explanation for the, vi- the variety of life on Earth does not explain how life got started. So Dawkins goes on to say, because natural selection cannot proceed without it, you need the beginning of life in order for uh, natural selection to take over. And so here's what Dawkins says. He says, the anthropic principle comes onto its own here, comes into its own here. We can deal with the unique origin of life by postulating, and here's the key, a very large number of planetary opportunities. So basically what Richard is saying is that because there are so many planets in the universe that this, this plethora of planets, obviously, Wayne, life with so many planets, life will eventually arise on one of them. That's what he's saying here. But but follow this. He goes, once that initial stroke of luck has been granted, natural selection takes over. And natural selection is emphatically not a matter of luck. So how does an eminent Oxford biologist say that life got started? Luck. But his concept that we have so many planets uh, that naturally this combination of the origin of life and then the subsequent natural development of life, if it happened here, it must have happened in other on other planets. That's the gist of where I think a lot of the concepts of, of alien life, the idea of aliens, have come about. Right. and But there's not enough um, awareness of all the the negatives on the other side of the problem. So he's, the, his argument is that if you have enough planets and enough possible, enough, enough uh, uh, stars and planets and combinations, 
there'll have to be a winning combination somewhere. Well, so that's about the distance from the star and the habitable zone that we were talking about. And But there's a lot of other things that have to happen uh, for these planets uh, to be habitable. So, for example, you could have a planet that is, uh, let's say you have a planet that's a whole lot like Earth and it's in the habitable zone of a star somewhere. But uh, that star, if that star is... Uh, has really powerful solar flares that could just kill all life. Um, and it's, there's some very strong solar flares in a lot of stars. Some of them are very, very, uh, they vary a lot in, how, in their brightness. That would cause problems. Uh, the radiation from some of these stars would be very, very dangerous. Um, and then if, even if that's not a problem, you may not have the materials needed for life to get going. It could be in the habitable zone and not have any water. And mm-hmm. scientists don't really know of any um, any way it could it could be, happen without water, even if it's in the right temperature range. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, then... There's kind of sometimes some debate about gaseous planets. So, for example, could a a planet like Jupiter or Saturn um, have life? Maybe uh, microscopic um, microbes or something. You know, Dan, did you know that there are microorganisms on Earth that live in the atmosphere and they can drift into space? I did not. Maybe I've heard that and forgot it, but uh, no. This uh, happens some. So Earth sort of scatters microorganisms around the solar system. <laughs> wow. But um, so NASA has done various experiments with um, microorganisms in space and there's been various lab experiments to kind of figure out, okay, if they're in, it's in a vacuum, does it still survive? If it's in certain temperature ranges, you know, does it still survive? There are some microbes that can survive some high and high and low temperatures. And uh, they might be able to survive at least for some period of time, even in outer space. But that doesn't mean they could survive forever. The thing that becomes damaging to microorganisms like that in space would be uh, ultraviolet and radiation, mainly. Yeah, and then never mind if you're a microbe on a comet riding in through the Earth's atmosphere. Um, We did a little program on comets, and uh, the likelihood of a microbe surviving Earth entry on a comet is pretty much zero. There's uh, <laughs> there's there's seemingly no way that a, a microbe on a comet, if it was alive, would be alive after it passed through Earth's atmosphere. It would have yeah, crisp- so crispified. Dan, we talked about on that program, uh, the comet program. We talked about panspermia, I believe. You know, that's yes, the right. idea that life could come to Earth from space, right, from somewhere else. Well, there's a variation on the term of panspermia. There's lithopanspermia. Okay, now this, I don't know if I've looked into that before. What is lithopanspermia? Lithopanspermia is the idea that you can have microbes in a rock. So the 
if it's inside something, I see. I see. It would the rock could protect it from radiation, get across space, and it, maybe there could even be some ice or something to kind of help it survive in that in that chunk. I mean, so, something like an asteroid or something. Uh, have we ever found a living microbe deep inside a rock before? No. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't now, think we have. There was a case where they thought they had. Now, this some may disagree with me. There, were, there was the Martian meteorite, wasn't Martian it? Martian meteorite. Now, yeah. For a long time, there there were some who thought it, maybe it was a it was the remains of a microorganism, and I don't believe that's the consensus now. I don't think it's. Uh, Living thing. It's uh, the consensus was finally against that being from a living thing. But it, you you would think that they should have done the responsible thing and waited until they had a consensus before President Clinton announced the finding. I remember how popular that was. Yeah, I, the, I think they really jumped to the wrong conclusion way yeah, too easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it did kind of look like certain microorganisms. Yeah, it looked like something we're familiar with, bacteria yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, now, we're talking about life, uh, alien life, uh, coming from this concept of a long, slow, gradual development of biological life on Earth. I wanted to um, share something that I got from um, Stephen C. Meyer, his book, Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. This was published in 2009. We have interviewed Dr. Meyer last year, a wonderful gentleman. He was on the Atheist and Christian Book Club with us. And uh, we will put links to those interviews in the description notes below. But uh, I wanted I wanted to to share this with our listeners, Wayne, and and I think you may find this equally fascinating as I did. Um, so Dr. Meyer makes this observation, and he says, "I'm uh, quoting from his book." He says, uh, "Scientists have increasingly recognized the probabilistic resources of the observable universe are insufficient to explain, by chance alone, the origin." of a minimally complex cell, one cell, or even a self-replicating system of RNA molecules, or even for that matter, a single protein of modest length. As a result, a few scientists have looked beyond our universe for additional probabilistic resources by which to render chance explanation, a chance explanation for the origin of life more plausible, end quote. And so what he's saying, what Steve is saying there is that um, some people who have really put their minds to this problem about a single cell have realized there's maybe not enough space and time in our observable universe for the complexity of something like a single cell with information in it to have come from our universe, Wayne. This is the implication. This is incredible. Yes. It's a fantastic problem, but it's a huge intractable problem. Yeah. Well, now, so here's what's being done. Meyer cites a study. He says, quote, in May of 2007, Eugene Koonin of the National Center for Biotechnology Information at the National Institutes of Health published an article in Biology Direct entitled The Cosmological Model of Eternal Inflation and the transition from chance to biological evolution in the history of life. What a title. So in other words, Mr. Dr. Koonin is trying to relate a cosmological model of inflation that would explain biological evolution in the history of life. 
This is incredible. So in the article, Kunin admits that, quote, no compelling scenarios currently exist for the origin of replication and translation in the DNA, the key processes that together comprise the core of biological systems and the apparent prerequisite of biological evolution. And he goes on to talk about the RNA, the difference between the RNA and the DNA. And in a very, I don't want to go into all the, the technical detail. Many of our listeners may already know the differences. But in a very overly simplistic um, explanation of RNA, DNA, basically think of a cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? Most of our audiences will probably remember, remember cassette tapes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so RNA would be a cassette tape, okay? But DNA is is the music that you make your mixtapes for your friends or whatever. DNA is the information on the tape. And a cassette tape by itself would not produce the music or the voice that's on the cassette tape. It's just a replicator. It just catches the information and translates it. You pop in the cassette. The information on the cassette is transferred to something else, another tape or your ears or whatever. DNA is the actual information. There's actual real... Stephen Meyer has a whole book on this, a couple of books, uh, Signature in the Cell being one of them, that, that DNA, the problem for biology today is DNA is information itself. And so what is this gentleman, Dr. Coonan, doing in this article. And here, here's the conclusion. Dr. Coonan posits the existence of an infinite number of other life-compatible universe, universes. Since, he argues, the existence of such universes would render even fantastically improbable events, such as the origin of life, probable or even inevitable. Okay, so what did we just say that Richard Dawkins did? In order to get evolution on earth what did dawkins do he he said well the origin of life was pure luck but once we have luck we get natural selection but why luck and natural selection well because we have all these planets well what did dr coonan do he didn't multiply planets he multiplied universes (laughs) so we have an occam's razor perfect perfect opportunity to apply occam's razor you're multiplying infinite amount of unnecessary explanations to explain a single cell, Wayne. This is fantastic. We're going to postulate an infinite number of planets. Oh, wait, that's not enough. Let's postulate an infinite number of universes to explain DNA in the cell. Isn't isn't that just radically mind-blowing? I mean, I'm sorry for my shock and and surprise, but, but this is what is being touted as a kind of science that that we're going to multiply universes to explain dna in the cell how about that yeah i think it's unrealistic and it's um it's it's uh extrapolating beyond what's reasonable it is and so dr coonan says he says here's the conclusion in an infinite multiverse with a finite number of distinct microscopic histories, macroscopic histories, each repeated an infinite number of times, emergence of even highly complex systems by chance is not just possible, but inevitable. So if you posit an endless amount of universes... Well, the, the worst thing in that statement is the last word. It's not, it's not inevitable. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And so this ties into something else that um, 
I thought fit right into this. It's not just biology that's positing these things, Wayne. This isn't just limited to biologists trying to explain DNA. Physicists do this too. So there's two physicists that I have in mind that I know of that have published pop- on the popular level about quantum theories of our universe. I'm not a quantum mechanic. Um, is there such thing as a quantum mechanic? If there are quantum mechanics, are there, <laughs> are there quantum people that work on quantum? Physicists don't call themselves <laughs> quantum mechanics. but uh. <laughs> Yeah, we have to make that distinction. Quantum mechanics is a theory. But I wonder if people who work on quantum mechanics are quantum mechanics. I don't know. Uh, uh, the, quantum, the, the quantum mechanics specialists are more like mathematicians, really. Yeah. Or maybe they're guys who work on cars and other universes. Quantum mechanics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because we laugh, Wayne. We laugh. But both Sean Carroll, Dr. Sean Carroll, and Dr. Brian Greene have, in popular level books, Brian Greene's uh, The Hidden Reali- The Hidden Reality... I think it is. And then Sean Carroll's book, Something Deeply Hidden. Brian Greene was 2011. Sean Carroll was uh, 2019 or 2020 with Something Deeply Hidden. They're both espousing a kind of uh, physics that is known as the many worlds hypotheses. And I'm not sure, you know, people could take me to task because there's different quantum theories. There's different flavors of quantum theory. So Greene and Carroll may be a little different in the mechanics of how they see things, but their conclusions are basically the same. Sean Carroll believes that our universe is the result of a quantum fluctuation and that, that there are many, many quantum fluctuations, that a, a, the wave function collapses on a universal scale and creates a universe. Okay, so this is going back to the 50s and Hugh Everett, who was a physicist who posited this. And basically the implication is to explain our universe, if the quantum theory of many worlds is true, then what is possible, or not just possible, but probably inevitable, is that there are you and I, Wayne, having a podcast somewhere else in another universe just like this, only I'm where you are and you are with me or wherever. But there, the, the, the consequences of this quantum wave function universe collapse creating thing is multi- multiples of, of you and I. Our doppelgangers fill the universe infinitely. There is some universe where I am winning the World Series right now. Uh, there is some universe where you're riding a bike uh, in Sweden, um, but but that and that's the same thing with Brian Greene in his 2011 book, uh, The Hidden Reality is what it is. Chapter two is called Endless Doppelgangers, and this is what he says: In the far reaches of an infinite cosmos, there's a galaxy that looks just like the Milky Way, with a solar system that's the spitting image of ours, with a planet that's a dead ringer for Earth, with a house that's indistinguishable from yours. Inhabited by someone who looks just like you, who is right now reading this very book and imagining you in a distant galaxy just reaching the end of this sentence. And there's not just one such copy. In an infinite universe, there are infinitely many. In some, your doppelganger is now reading the sentence along with you. In others, he or she has skipped ahead or feels in need of a snack and has put, a, put the book down. In others, still, he or she has, well, a less than felicitous disposition and as someone you'd rather not meet in a dark alley. And then he goes on to say, we'd, we'd never meet these people because uh, there's no way to get to these other universes. But this is what physicists are doing. Well, of course there is other life out there. Well, yeah. And Dan, there's, that's just, um, it's, there's certain things in quantum mechanics that can be interpreted different ways. 
and this just happens to be i seems like it's just one fad. way yeah. it's the current fad of how to interpret it mm-hmm. the the many worlds interpretation the right. other the other way is called the copenhagen interpretation which i'm not sure how to explain right now but it's you don't have there's no real necessity to conclude that there's many universes and i think it's a cop out cuz it yeah. doesn't deal with design well it's the, it, our one universe requires um um natural law and a, a predictability order in the atom and all all these things that we depend on really uh, as as living beings mm-hmm. and it doesn't really explain how any universe came about just to say that there could be many universes right any any one universe requires certain things to happen exactly and uh, so it doesn't really explain anything, and this many worlds view or many, in it really leads to explaining nothing. It's just saying that so many things are possible that anything could happen somewhere. Right, but right. That's not an explanation. It's not no. a scientific explanation. At least in science, you're supposed to explain uh, the unknown using the known. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. You're supposed to use the known things that we observe and understand to explain an unknown. But what they're doing with this many worlds idea to me is they're using an unknown to explain an unknown. Right. And that's not really science. Right. Right. And and what's fascinating, Wayne, to me is that I know that uh, Carol and Green, for example, and and many other physicists like them, I think Leonard Susskind at Stanford University is is similarly like-minded about uh, anything can happen and everything has happened, therefore everything will happen. Um, But it's interesting to get around the idea of one being, that being God, uh, that you have to postulate an infinite series of beings. It's mind-blowing that in order to try to explain our universe uh, and circumvent God as the creator, you end up creating these worlds that are completely metaphysical, hypothetical. Um, maybe the math makes it conceivable, um, but just because something mathematically on paper is calculable doesn't mean it actually transfers into reality. So to get around God, they have created an endless amounts of, of you and me. And I just, I, uh, I shudder to think of a universe filled with me. <laughs> One of me is enough. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I like to come back to what we have, what we, that we really know from science. You know, we do know there are many exoplanets. Yeah, in absolutely. Our, just in our, in our, gal- our galaxy alone, there's probably uh, at least as many exoplanets as there are stars. Right. And they've increased the estimate of the number of stars. I think they say two or three hundred billion in our galaxy, if I remember right. Two hundred billion, three hundred billion. It just keeps. Uh, they raise the number, and yeah, you see some some stars have um, maybe just one exoplanet that we know of, but others will have multiple. So the average would work out that you you may have more exoplanets than stars. Uh-huh. Some some uh, some exo, some stars would not have any exoplanets, uh, but others would have multiple. Mm-hmm. So um, so s- even if you have some of these planets 
that are in the in the habitable Goldilocks zone, that is not all it takes to get life. That's right. And even even if you had a planet just like Earth, in terms of the temperature, in terms of it having water and rocks of the different kinds. That doesn't necessarily mean life would come about on it. Right. We, scientists cannot explain how life came about on Earth. Right. Where we where we know there's good conditions for life. Right. So how can we how can we explain how life had come about on another exoplanet somewhere else that may not have nearly as good of an environment yeah. as Earth does? Well, um, getting back to uh, DNA. As you say, positing multiple planets, multiple universes, multiple selves, doesn't explain, it just multiplies the problem. How did life begin anyway? Of course, Dawkins at least is candid and says, well, it was just lucky. It's just luck. But, you know, so we're talking about, in, in the back of all of what we're saying, is some of these scientific foundations that give us the concept or the idea or sort of train our minds to think that there's there's life out there and intelligent life out there because it happened here it must have happened somewhere else uh i wanted to share this story and we've talked about this before on other programs about the arecibo uh, telescope which a couple of years ago it collapsed it's no longer functioning it just uh the weather the the metal rusted and it just collapsed but uh in 1974 astronomers sent a radio message toward a star cluster wayne that you and i saw on the telescope a few weeks ago M13, a globular star cluster. It looks like in our telescope, it looks like a an illuminated uh, Q-tip top. <laughs> uh, in my telescope, I have a 10-inch Dobsonian telescope, and so you can kind of see um, M13 is beautiful, and you you can see separation of stars. If you have a smaller telescope, it just looks like fuzz, um, and you can understand why uh, uh, the uh, the comet ferret uh, Charles Messier. Uh, who was looking for comets and had a low-power telescope, saw these balls of fuzz and listed them as, do not look at that. That is not a comet. This is a ball of fuzz. Um, but but actually, uh, M13 is a, a beautiful star cluster. Anyway, um, we beamed a radio message uh, of 1,679 bits of information toward M13 because we certainly thought that with all those stars that certainly there would be a planetary system of intelligent life possibly that could intercept our radio message and decode the ones and zeros that we trans translated through these 1,679 bits. Now, in that radio message, Wayne, what do you think they did? They included uh, a pictogram in bit, in byte, in bit. It looks like, if you see the picture of it, it looks like a, uh, it looks like the, uh, uh, it looks like an old pixeled video game kind of thing, um, but we sent them a, we sent them some signals of DNA to say, hey, here's here's some intelligent life this way. If you get this message, let us know. Of course, we're not going to know for another forty eight thousand years because a round trip, uh, light year round trip to M thirteen is uh, forty eight thousand years. So we we we're not going to know for a few years uh, if they got the message, but let's just th this is what I found fascinating to me that when we want to contact alien civilizations and say hey there's some intelligent life here, we send them a pictogram of DNA. Okay, I understand that. So how come many of these same scientists who are eager maybe to to make contact with 
alien civilizations, will say that our DNA is not evidence of intelligent life or intelligent design. You, you see the problem here. So when, it, when we look at ourselves and we look at DNA, oh, that's not evidence of an intelligent designer. But when we want to talk to aliens, suddenly our DNA is evidence of intelligent life. So if I'm an alien and I come to Earth and I start talking to people and I'm reading their textbooks, I'm wondering, now will somebody tell me, please, is DNA evidence of intelligence or not? Because well, you, yes, this is. Uh, <laughs> you see the point there. When they when they um, put a message out, which they hope aliens will somewhere there there are aliens who will get the message. They are using uh, an information code, and yeah. but they don't acknowledge the information code that's right right here or where we are it's it's in our bodies right. and in every cell and that's right. the the information code in itself wouldn't be enough actually dan because it, in if dna has to be read and used by a lot of complex machinery in the cell so it's like which came first the dna or the machinery to use the dna and um DNA is a fantastically complex information code. I have an article on my website that I did once. Uh, it's called Mutations and Creation. And I show in that article that in DNA, it's not just like there's one information code. It's like there's multiple overlapping and interleaved codes. You know, in, in a sequence in DNA... There are multiple uh, multiple codes at once in, mm -hmm. in the sequence. And there can be up to seven, I've read, at once in the same sequence. Mm. It, it's like if you... I showed what this would be like on my website in this article. I tried to make a series of letters that had like multiple messages in it. And I showed how this could be done, but it's to think, that was just a simple little example. I put four messages um, in in one sequence of letters to show how what what this means. It's kind of an analogy of what DNA is like. It's a fantastically complex thing that uh, is in DNA. It's it's really beyond any human creation, and. Um, it's all the inform all the evidence you'd ever need for the there being an intelligent message from somebody. Mm -hmm.